Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We are working our way through the book of Galatians. Of course, we are in the midst of a series called How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. The title of today's message is How to Be Right with God. How to Be Right with God. We'll be finishing Galatians chapter 2, but we'll just read a couple uh, verses right now to get us started. So let's read together verses 15 and 16. Remember that Paul is talking to Peter. They've been having a confrontation about the application of the gospel within the church. And so this is Paul sort of rebuking Peter here. So it says in Galatians 2.15, You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that profound, world-changing, wonderful truth that we just read, the truth of the gospel that you haven't asked us to do anything, but rather you are in the Bible reporting to us what you have done for us in the person of Christ and his substitutionary death upon the cross. We, we thank you for that. And we ask together as a church and as individuals that that truth would change our lives and ever increasingly so. That we would get a greater glimpse of how you feel about us and what you expect from us. We would have a wonderful sense of being settled once and for all in your love and your kindness, your undeserved favor toward us. And that that would radically change us. And we would show that forth to the world and it would change the world. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds to hear and absorb and live these truths. I ask that you'd please anoint me with your Holy Spirit to communicate these truths. Lord, I I desperately want to be faithful to what you've called me to do. I desperately want to communicate in a way that is true to your character and your word and your gospel. So please anoint me to do that, Lord, for your glory and the furtherance of your purposes and the fame of your name. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that my daughter, Daisy, uh, just a few weeks ago finished her last round of chemo. And then <clears throat> this week, she had her scans, her like big time scans, like really take a deep look inside scans. And they came back clear. There are no signs of cancer at this time. Thanks for that. Um, One of our main goals now in helping her to recover from both cancer and chemotherapy is to really fuel and rebuild her system through nutrition. Okay, we need need to do that. Cancer and chemo have taken a toll, so we need to fuel and rebuild her system through nutrition. So my wife bought a juicer. And she's been juicing for Daisy nonstop. She got the Jack LaLanne model from Costco. And, uh, <laughs> but when my wife juices, it's not like, uh, you know, apple juice and a little bit of carrot. It's like 
gnarly juice. We have this service, there's this local business in Carpinteria that delivers local organic produce to your door. And they deliver like the gnarliest things. It's like a tree in a box, just this like big, like woody, green, hard, just, just an, I don't even know what it is. I'm like, is there anything in here? I know what it is. It's just big, gnarly green stuff. And my wife juices that stuff for Daisy. It's like, it's like seriously shoving a tree through the thing. And she wants Daisy to drink this stuff. Now, Daisy has a, a current favorite food. Throughout chemotherapy, your taste buds change all the time. So she's got a current favorite food, which is cheesy popcorn from Trader Joe's. Loves it. Would eat it 24-7 if we let her. But we don't let her because it's not the best thing for her. So we limit her on the cheesy popcorn. So here's what Daisy does in her desire to attain the cheesy popcorn. <laughs> is she seeks to negotiate with her mom. Mom, if you let me have a big bowl of cheesy popcorn, I will drink some of that juice that you make. And it works because mom is a negotiator. Mom demands something up front, but if you deliver, then she'll give something on the back end. Mom is a negotiator, so that works. Dad, on the other hand... Daisy will usually try to catch me when she's looking for the cheesy popcorn snack because she knows that I'm more like Santa Claus than I am a negotiator. I don't demand as much on the front end as mom does. I'm like, cheesy popcorn for sure. Here's two bowls. And what's interesting is that most people view God like Daisy views mom or dad. That is to say, most people view God either as a negotiator or a Santa Claus type figure. Here's what I mean. For those of us who have a sense that God demands something of us, that God expects something of us, and we perhaps also have this sense that we have not always met those demands or lived up to those expectations, For those of us that have that sense and feel that way, we hope that God is a negotiator. Because we know that we're not quite deserving, but we're confident that we could broker a deal to make up for the deficit. And so we we promise God better behavior, more commitment, that we'll try harder and we'll be better if he'll deliver fill in the blank. Whatever it is your felt need is at that time. Forgiveness of sins, healing for this thing, help with that problem, entrance into heaven. God, I'll I'll do better, I'll try harder, I'll, I'll perform better. If you will, we enter into negotiations with God. Because we realize that God has demands. But we feel that we can negotiate a deal that will cause us to be right with God because we think God's probably a negotiator. On the other side, those of us that don't sense that God demands anything of us, we expect God to be more like Santa Claus. We expect God to be kind of a a nice grandfatherly figure 
who knows that his kids are sometimes naughty, but he's not overly concerned about it. A Santa Claus type. Yeah. Our parents wanted us to believe that Santa Claus had a list and he was checking it twice, who's naughty and nice. Not really. Santa didn't really care. He's Santa. He's going to deliver the goods. That's what he does. So for those of us that don't sense that God expects anything much of us, we, we have this sense, he's like Santa Claus. He's just going to be generous and give just because that's how he is. And we feel that we are deserving at least so much as anybody else. So it's not too hard from our perspective to be right with God. After all, he's like Santa Claus. But the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible communicates that God does have demands and expectations. And that God is horribly just. God has demands and he is horribly just. He's not like Santa Claus or a grandfather figure. He doesn't wink at sin. He's not going to let it go. He's horribly just. And the Bible further communicates then that we are not at all deserving. And that God doesn't grade on on a curve, unfortunately. Furthermore, the Bible makes it clear that God is not a negotiator. Because he is without lack. God spoke all things into existence. He created all things so that there's nothing that he needs. There's nothing you can bring to the table to negotiate with God. He's all sufficient. There's nothing we can do or stop doing that is going to be able to ultimately please God, provide God with something, or undo all the wrong that we have already done, or cause God to just simply forget about all the wrong that we've done. Not Santa Claus, nor is he a negotiator. The Bible paints a bleak picture. Very bleak. But then what the Bible does is communicate that there is good news. That the issue of being right with God, the way that we become right with God, is not by meeting the demands, not by living up to the expectations. Not by obeying the laws, it says here, or keeping the rules. Not by trying harder or doing better or being better. The way that we are right with God is only through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So that there is no need to negotiate. And we can trust God to be both just and generous. Now, we see this explained in the text today. Remember that we come to this text in the middle of a sort of argument between Peter and Paul. Peter wasn't living out the implications of the gospel within the church body. He was effectively creating first-class and second-class Christians by expecting certain, certain ones to perform well, and if they didn't do certain things, they were sort of lesser. He was removing them, himself from them. So Paul's dealing with him on that issue, communicating to him the true gospel. We pick, it right in the, we pick it up right in the middle of that narrative. Again, verse 15. Paul says to Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Now stop right there. Don't misunderstand the contrast. Paul is not contrasting good and bad. He's not saying we're Jews, good, and then there's Gentiles, bad. That's not what he's doing. 
The idea of the Jew here is, Paul is saying, Peter, you and I are, are of the people who were given the law by God. And, and so we know what God expects of humanity. He gave the law to Israel, to the Jews. We, we know what he expects. And, and the mindset of our people has been to try then to meet those demands, live up to that expectation. We're not sinners like the Gentiles. Now, he's not using sinners there in the way that we do. It necessarily mean bad. It means more irreligious. They were Gentiles, non-Jews. He's merely saying they didn't get the rules from God. They, they weren't part of Israel when it was delivered. So, so they weren't clear on what God expects. And so they didn't have a clear agenda to meet those expectations or demands. He's kind of saying that the Jews have always seen God as negotiator. We've been given the expectations in the law. If we do right and do certain things, then God will deliver on certain things. The Gentiles, on the other hand, kind of see God as Santa Claus. Not being totally sure what he expected of them, they just expected that he would kind of be okay with them. Now look what he says in verse 16. This is huge. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So he says here very clearly, a person is made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Not by obeying the law, not by living up to the demands or the expectations or performing well or doing the right thing, however that's defined. This then is one of the most important verses in your Bible because it communicates what is perhaps the most important truth of Christianity. The doctrine of justification by faith. The teaching of justification by faith. Which is, in a nutshell, the good news that men and women, you and I, can be made right with God and accepted by God. Not because of anything we do or don't do, but through the simple act of trusting in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. A person is made right, justified. Okay, that's how the New Living Translation translates that. A person is made right, justified with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. Now that word justification is an incredibly important theological term. It is a legal term. And here's what it means. It means the exact opposite of condemned. It is the exact opposite of condemned. What what does it mean to be condemned? It means to be declared guilty. To be condemned is to be declared guilty. Justification is the exact opposite. To be justified is to be declared innocent. But here's the radical, otherworldly profundity of it. We are declared innocent by God through faith in Jesus Christ, even though we're guilty. That's what's nuts. 
right? Because we're guilty. We know we're guilty. And God knows we're more guilty than we know we're guilty. We're really guilty, the Bible says. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we are justified, declared innocent, even though we're guilty. So in the Bible, justification refers to the act by which God makes people right with himself. But it's not only that we're declared innocent. That's just, that's just a, this is half of justification. Okay? It's not only that God forgives us and declares us innocent, but it is now that God treats us in a way that is excellent. Because it's one thing just to be innocent, that's sort of morally neutral. But what happens is that God through Christ now views us as excellent, righteous, you might say. And so he treats us excellently. It's not just that we're innocent even though we're guilty. It's that we are treated excellently even though we're guilty. No one will ever be made right with God justified by obeying the law. Person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Because God does have demands. He's not Santa Claus. He's not a grandfather who winks at sins. God does have demands. And the Bible says we continually fail to meet them. More so than we even realize. So then, in his love, what God does is he meets the demands for us. Through his son being draped in humanity, Jesus Christ coming and doing two things effectively. Living a perfect life and dying a substitutionary death. God meets the demands of the law for us. In Christ living a perfect life and dying a substitutionary death. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life because we could not. And he died a horrific death so that we would not. And then what happens when we put our faith in him is that both of those things that Jesus did are applied to us. His perfect life and standing with God is applied to us. And the sins being paid for on the cross is applied to our account. Therefore, God can and does treat us excellently. Because he only sees us now through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we are both pardoned and treated well. We are both innocent and made righteous, given merit before God. We could say it this way. God, no, let's say it this way. How shall I say it? We'll say it this way. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived my wicked life so that he could treat me for eternity as if I lived his perfect life. So now, because of what Jesus has done for us, when we put our trust in that, we are free from the demand of obeying the law and we are free from the penalty of having broken the law. And we are brought into a place of grace. 
Favor before God. We've been made right with God and now, now we stand before him in favor. No one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. The reason is nobody can obey the law perfectly. That's, that's the testimony of Israel. They got the law and they tried for thousands of years to obey it and it went from bad to worse. History proves and our own experience proves that nobody can obey it perfectly. So nobody will ever be right with God through obedience. So the only hope then for humanity, for us, is that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. To put your faith in him does not mean merely to agree. It doesn't mean to just say, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus did that. Literally, it's believing into Jesus Christ. It means that we're running to him in refuge and clinging to him for mercy, that we are placing squarely all of our hope for this life and the life to come and our position before God in Jesus. Not merely intellectual, but wholeheartedly leaning on what he did for us to be right with God. Now, Paul begins to defend this in verse 17. He says, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ led us into sin? In other words, he's saying, okay, so somebody becomes a Christian, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're forgiven of their sins, but now as Christians, they start to sin. A Christian is a Christ follower. You, you, you gave your life to Christ and now you're sinning. So in some way then, did Christ lead you into sin? And what Paul is saying is absolutely not. Quite to the contrary. What is sin, he'll say, is to try to go back and relate to God once again by developing our own merit. That is sin. If once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, been justified, made innocent, declared innocent and treated excellent, have God's grace upon us, if then we try to make that relationship about how well we do or don't do, that is sin. Christ doesn't lead us into that. That's our own folly. That's what it says in verse 19. For when I tried to keep the law, or excuse me, verse 18, Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. That's what he's saying. I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law. Trying to relate to God through performance, negotiation, doing well. That is sin because Christ destroyed that on the cross. Then he explains it in verse 19. This is why. He says, for when I tried to keep the law, It condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Paul was excellent at keeping the law. That's part of his testimony. He was a Pharisee. He was more zealous than anybody else. He excelled beyond all of his his peers in obeying God's rules and the minutia thereof. He gave his whole life to careful observance of the rules. And he said, all that that ever did was condemn me. Because the more I got into the rules, the more I realized I'm guilty. 
And the more I tried to do, I could never get there. I could never get to the place where I was innocent before God. When I tried to keep the rules, it condemned me. In other words, it never gained me any favor or acceptance with God. It only proved how sinful and wrong I was. I was never justified by the law. I was only condemned. So here's what happened for Paul. Next part of the verse, he says, so I died to the law. I just stopped trying to meet its requirements in order that I might live for God. What does it mean to die to the law? Well, if you're dead to something, it doesn't have an effect on you anymore. It doesn't have power over you anymore, right? Like when you're dead, it's certain things, it's nothing. Like whatever, put a pizza in front of my face, don't even want it. <laughs> dead to it, right? So it's got, no, it's got no power over him anymore. It's got, it's got no effect on him. John Calvin said about this, to die to the law is to renounce it and be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it. And it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. The reason that it can't hold us captive anymore is because Jesus met its requirements for us. Both the requirements of living righteously and paying the debt. Jesus did that for us. He removed the burden and the penalty so it doesn't have power over us in any way. We're dead to it. So all of our previous efforts and negotiations to placate God, to please God, to to make him be happy with us, are null and void. You see, many of you are trapped in that still. You've had a bad week. You sinned more than you thought you would. And you come to church and, and you're thinking that God is upset with you. That God is displeased with you. And you're hoping that somehow you'll be able to do some things today to make God more happy with you. You want to be able to negotiate some stuff. Lord, I'm coming to church today. I'm going to worship you. I'll I'll even chuck some hands up for you, Lord. And then this week, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do better. Ooh, Lord, I'm going to do better. Just feel better about me so that I can feel better about me. The gospel destroys that. You see, if you're, if you're trying to relate to God that way, if you're trying to somehow make God happy with you by careful rule keeping, you're actually just living for yourself because you're just trying to win God's favor. So you're serving yourself, not God. It's about you. I want God to feel better about me so I can stop feeling guilty and feel better about myself. See, when we stop making it about what we do well or have failed to do well and make it about what Jesus has done very well for us on the cross, then and only then can we actually begin to live for God. You see, the gospel frees us from the pressure of trying to do something we can't do and be someone we can't be. So then living for God takes on this new dynamic. When you're trying to win God's favor, you're actually living for yourself. But, but now that we know we, we have God's favor, now for the first time, we can start to live for God. And then obedience 
is inspired from a whole different place. You see, obedience is still there, isn't it? Some of you are listening today thinking, this is awesome. I can just put my faith in Jesus Christ and do whatever the heck I want. Best thing ever. And some of you have been thinking that this whole series. You're like, best series Pastor Britt ever taught in the whole world. I'm doing anything and everything. When we die to the law, it doesn't have power over us. It doesn't condemn us or shape us anymore. But the love of God and the grace of God does. We begin to live for God. It inspires obedience from a different place. No longer is it, I need to do this to make God happy. Now it is, God has made me so happy that I want to do things that please him. Obedience comes from a whole new place, just like anybody that we are truly in love with. There's this couple in our church just got um, engaged, Mike Santa Rosa and Jen Coker, and they're just the cutest couple. I am so excited about them being engaged. So they just got engaged, and they're so in love. It's like infectious, you know what I mean? You can just tell that Mike all the time is just thinking like, what can I do for this chick? Because that's what you do when you're nutty in love. Like he wakes up in the morning, he's like, Jen, what can I do for her today? They're walking down the road. He's like, where's a flower to pick for this woman? If I could pluck the moon from the sky, and what can I do? Because that's what crazy love does. And, and when we experience the forgiveness of God and the love of God through the work of Jesus Christ, then we are brought into a radical, crazy love affair. And all of a sudden, we're like, I want to do things for God. Like, I want to do things that please God. Like, I'm not even bummed. I want to do things that please God. And at that point, then we we need the rules, not because we need to obey them, but because they explain to us what is good and right before God. So now we have an interest. Oh, I I want to do that because I'm, I'm in love with God. And then perhaps for the first time ever, we, we, we discover that for which we are created. To know God and enjoy Him forever. That is what we are created for, to know God and enjoy Him forever. Until you realize that you have total pardon and are treated excellent by God because of what Jesus did. You can't enjoy Him. The moment we grasp that with all of our being, we enjoy God because we were created for that. And we live to please him and delight in him because of who he is, not what we can get from him. It's not Santa Claus anymore. We grew up. Verse 20. Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, I, I, now that I'm with Jesus, I, I don't have a life of my own anymore. The only life I have is the life that God puts in me through Jesus Christ. What this is, is a matter of identity. You see, Paul's former identity was based upon how well he performed and kept the rules. And and we do the same thing. We base our identity 
positively or negatively on how we do or don't do. And, and it's formed for us at a very young age. Some of you heard someone say to you, you'll never amount to anything. Can't you do better? What's wrong with you? And that shaped your identity negatively. Others of you had smoke blown places and your parents told you, you're the greatest saint God ever made. You make John the Baptist look like an idiot. You're the greatest ever born among women. And that affected your identity positively and negatively. But we do this. We form our identities on how well we do or don't do and what others say about that. What the gospel does is challenge and combat that way of forming identity. For those who are feeling defeated and undeserving, the gospel says, you are loved. You are loved. I created you and I love you. And I know what's gone on in your life, but Jesus died for you and rose to give you new life. And I only see you through the lens of Jesus. In my eyes, you are excellent. And I will treat you excellently. Conversely, for those who feel they've performed well and are deserving, the gospel says to them, dude, there is nothing you can do that impresses God. And all those things that you think bring you merit and some sort of value before God are null and void. They just don't according to God's standard. You are not loved by God because you're valuable. You are valuable because you're loved by God. And so all the ways that we may draw identity and identify others according to performance are crushed by the gospel. And we are then offered a new identity. Okay, he says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. If that is true, then our old identities are irrelevant. Whether we think we're deserving because we're a law keeper or we think we're undeserving because we're a lawbreaker. If we've been crucified with Christ, then all the previous identities are irrelevant. And so we can't function anymore according to failure. You are not the sum total of your failures. Brennan Manning, speaking about this, says, if we continue as Christians to view ourselves as moral lepers and spiritual failures, if our lives are shadowed by low self-esteem, shame, remorse, unhealthy guilt, and self-hatred, then we reject the teaching of Jesus and cling to our own negative self-image. You are loved, declared innocent, and made excellent by what Jesus has done. Conversely, if we continue to hold on to what seems to us something that would impress God and please God and have value before God, then we are also rejecting the teaching of Jesus, who said, all have sinned. There are none who are good, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God, but you are loved and declared innocent and truly made righteous and excellent because of Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the new identity is that we are identified with Christ because theologically speaking now, what happens in salvation is we're united with Christ. We're united with Christ in such a real and profound way that the Bible would say this, Whatever is true of Jesus is now true about the Christian. The perfect life that he lived, 
credited to your account. The atoning death that he died, considered the death for your own sins. The new life that he was resurrected to, you have new life. Seated in the heavenlies with the Father, that is where you are. Heir to all things that God spoke into existence, you are co-heirs with Christ. And the most profound thing that we could say is that because we are identified with Christ through placing our faith in Christ, God loves you as much as he loves his son. God loves you as much as he loves his perfect, eternal, holy, and righteous son. Christ who lives in me. Christ is now in us. We're united with Christ. So then, Christ's life and power is at work in us. So then what we experience is transformation. And this deals with a common objection to the idea of being justified by faith as opposed to works. The objection would be this. If God justifies and accepts through faith in Jesus Christ, anybody with any sort of behavior, then why wouldn't we just go on doing whatever we want to do? Right? Some of you have been wondering that. Some would say, doesn't the gospel and the doctrine of justification by faith actually encourage sin? No. And here's why. Listen very carefully. Justification is not legal fiction in which a person's statuses change while his or her character is untouched. That is not how justification works. Justification is not legal fiction, wherein your status has changed, but your character and nature are untouched. Because justification happens when we are united with Christ. And someone who is united with Jesus is never the same. Someone who is made one with Jesus so that what is true of Jesus is true of us from the Father's perspective apart from deity, is never the same. They are changed, transformed. The life of Christ in us. Christ lives in me. It is not only that our standing before God changes, but we ourselves are radically and permanently transformed. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations. Brand new things with brand new natures. So then to talk about going on sinning, well, gosh, God's just going to keep forgiving me. I'm going to keep sinning. Is not consonant with who you are. You're being untrue to your new shared identity with Christ. You're being dishonest to who he's made you to be. Because if Christ is in us, then we actually begin to think feel and desire differently than before. Can I get a witness? If Christ is in us, we actually begin to feel, think, and desire differently because you cannot be united with Christ and be the same. There is definitely a process that is involved, but it is there. Christ now lives in us. And and the flip side of it, the beauty of it is even when we still sin. Anybody still sin? Even when we still sin, we are still accepted. 
We are still right with God and we are still loved by God and he will still treat us excellently. That is the good news. And now here again, that very fact that we are still loved and accepted then changes us even more and causes us to want to respond to that love affair with greater obedience. When we sin in a shocking way and we realize because we think deeply upon this truth that I am still accepted, I am still right with God, I am still loved, that changes the man or woman ever more to want to respond in obedience. You see, a mere demand to keep the rules for the sake of keeping the rules can never create lasting change. We'll never be able to pull it off. Only the truth is we are so deeply loved and wholly accepted, even though we have failed to keep the rules, creates a lasting desire and ability to then do so. Christians then who sin too much are not those that believe too much in grace. They believe too little in grace. So our new identity and our new approach to life are driven, again, by what's said in verse 20, the last part of it. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our whole approach to life now is I'm going to live this life by trusting in the Son of God. I'm not going to live it by trying to do better, be better, work harder. It's going to frustrate. I'm going to do it by trusting in the Son of God, who I can trust to be both just and generous, who's done everything for me that I can receive ultimate kindness. And everything that we do in life now is done with this thought in mind, that the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. And so it once and for all settles all of humanity's questions regarding God, which are this. How does God feel about me? And what does he expect from me? How does God feel about you? He loves you madly. He loves you so much he even likes you. (laughs) And what does he expect from me? He expects you to live your life trusting in Jesus, his work, his righteousness. That becomes our new approach to life and the new spot from which our identity is formed. So that we then can understand verse 21 where Paul says, I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if I, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Paul says, I'm, I'm not going to make it about this negotiated relationship. It, it is about God's grace. This undeserved thing of love that God has done in Christ for me. And and the truth of that verse for you guys here today, you need to realize, I'll finish with this statement, is that for you, Christ will either do everything or nothing. If you insist, if you insist upon trying to relate with God now or ultimately, according to how you perform, Christ is meaningless to you. But if you put your trust in Christ, then God's grace is not meaningless. That he does everything for you so that you can enter boldly 
before God's throne of grace so that you will stand before God with great joy and you will realize you stand before God today with great joy as he celebrates you in this love affair that the cross has accomplished. Amen? Lord, thank you for this glorious, beautiful truth. Oh, Lord, drive it into our hearts and minds. Drive it deep into the core of who we are and cause it to change us. And Lord, we pray together for anybody here who has never truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. They're still trying to relate to you by negotiation and they know they're guilty. We ask that you would now open their hearts and minds fully that they'd call upon you to be saved. They would realize that they've been wrong. God, you are right. And Jesus, you did everything. And they'd put all their hope and their trust in that and repent of their sins and cling to you. And we ask now together that as men and women are doing that in their hearts, you'd flood them with your love. You'd flood them with your love. You would do what you promised to do in the word. You'd wash them white as snow, make them brand new. We pray that they would get that and they would feel that. We pray for all of us here that we would experience the truth of your love in our lives, even right now, Lord. If you need help with anything, prayer team, pastors, elders would be up here to my right and my left. Community is here to celebrate what Jesus has done. You, you can come and, and get on your face before the Lord, kneel before the Lord, come together with one another and worship up here. But let's experience the presence of God that's been given us by the cross of Christ.